Father, we thank you for your blessing on the word of God tonight. And Lord, we know we're uh, approaching a sacred text. Uh, Lord, Holy Ghost inspired, and we pray your blessing on it tonight. And we thank you for it, Father. In the mighty name of Jesus, will you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to my heart tonight. I receive the word of God in Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, it's going to be good because the devil's fighting it so hard. (laughs) A couple of quick things before they record me, or if they are recording me, they can just edit this out. This is Memorial Day weekend, and I know a lot of people are on the road on that weekend, but if, if you're going to be here, pray about inviting somebody. Just pray about inviting somebody, that neighbor, family member. Um, you know, all they can say is no, and you'll still be alive if they say no. So pray about inviting somebody, but if you're going to be here, come ready to worship the Lord with all of your heart, because even though a lot of folks are gone, we're going to have church. And I'm going to talk about establishing the atmosphere, uh, establishing the right atmosphere in your home. Because we have an atmosphere here tonight, and we sang about it. The atmosphere is changing now. But you know what? What we experience here, you can experience in your home. Amen? So it's going to be a really good word. I have never preached this. Never, ever have I preached this. And I feel like God put it on my heart. Uh, But anyway, here we go. Let's talk about Paul the prisoner. Now, last time, we closed with Paul sitting in prison in Caesarea, awaiting his moment to address the court under the jurisdiction of Felix, the governor. Felix has decided to wait for his accusers to arrive, which is where chapter 24 picks up. And we're going to do 24 and 25 tonight, and then we only have three left, and we're done with the book of Acts. So what a journey this has been, because this is week 16. Can you believe that? We've been four months in the book of Acts? Doesn't feel like it, does it? All right, so let's read 24 verse 1. Now, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. Now, I want you to notice that the high priest with elders have come well-armed with a flattering lawyer named Tertullus who knew how to persuade. And they're hoping that he wins the day and that Paul is prosecuted because of his ability to persuade. And verse 2, And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you... Now, notice this buttering Felix up. It's sickening. He's flattering. And I want you to notice with me, there isn't anything new under the sun. Because he's about to try to butter up the judge. Seeing that that through you we enjoy great peace... And prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places. Most noble Felix with all thankfulness. Everybody say gag. Felix is being played right here. Verse 4. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. Now, listening to Tertullus... One would think that, Phyllis was the, uh, that Felix was the Prince of Peace. Of course, everything he said about Felix when he, that we just read was a lie. It was a, it was a lie. Felix was known for his cruelty and his treachery. 
But the lawyer wasn't concerned with truth, but with convicting Paul. Next, he turns to accuse Paul. Verse 5. For we have found this man to be a plague. Now, think about if this was being said about you. We have found this man to be a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, there stands Paul, probably the most righteous man on the planet at this point. He hadn't done a thing wrong. Everything being, he's being accused of is a complete lie, a fabrication. And look how he's being sullied and vilified and really slandered. And the lawyer says, guess what? He's, a, he's the ringleader of a sect. The sect is what he calls Christians. A sect. Now that's from the Greek word hierasis. Now, you can hear the English word we get from hierasis, can't you? What do you think it is? Heresy. Hierasis. He's actually calling the Christians heretics. He's, he's lumping Paul and all of the believers in Jesus and the followers of Jesus as heretics. Painting them in the worst light. Now, the Jews would not call believers Christians because the name was derived from Christ or Messiah and they were not going to honor them with something that carried that name. So Tertullus uses the contemptuous phrase Nazarenes instead. So they're members of a heretic sect. They're all heretics and Nazarenes. And I, and I will never call them Christians. Now, after accusing Paul of heresy and sectarianism and all kinds of good things, Tertullus moves along to another accusation, verse 6. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him, and we wanted to judge him according to our law. And folks, that, that charge is totally false. Paul had been in the temple area when attacked by the mob, but he had not taken a Gentile beyond the designated line. You remember the night we covered that? So he's using what people in our day are using right now. Half-truths. Half-truths are a favorite tactic of unprincipled men in prosecuting somebody innocent. Now let me ask you, are we seeing this kind of thing being used today as a ploy? Half-truths. Or just making something completely up out, out, of, out of the air. Just pulling something out of the air and say, here's what I saw or here's what I think. And pushing a lie so strongly that finally people start believing it. When I listen to Tertullus, oh, I could go places with this right now. But when I listen to Tertullus, I say to myself, number one, there's nothing new under the sun. The tactics he's using, half-truths, made-up lies, completely fabricated accusations uh, to try to confuse the listeners, to push forward a narrative that wasn't true. We're seeing it in our day. And we're daily faced with a very corrupted news media who have no problem with this tactic at all. Half-truths, made-up lies, things they know aren't true. But we believe, they believe, if you just push it long enough, people will finally believe it, which was Adolf Hitler's philosophy. If you push a lie long enough, people will start to believe it. If you repeat it enough, people will start to believe it. And I really do believe that that is the tactic of the modern-day news media 
and many politicians sitting in Washington right now. Now, that's free of charge. I'm saying that that's not in the Bible. That, but we're seeing a type here in this lawyer, Tertullus. So the lying law lawyer continues in verse 7. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Now, he's lied here as well. And he's depending on, catch this, he's depending on the presence of the high priest and other religious leaders to support him in the lie. So you've got a conglomeration of people here who have decided to push a lie. To accuse this man and get this man prosecuted for something that he did not do because they don't like him. They don't like his message. And we're going to see why they don't like it in just a moment. But bottom line is they have conspired together. And, and, and don't let it pass you that who's doing this? The high priest. The pope of that day. The ultimate religious leader amongst the Jews of that day. The one who ought to have been teaching scripture and doing what scripture teaches. Pushing a lie, surrounded by people who have agreed to push a lie, to accuse and prosecute an innocent man, Amen. to get him out of the way so that they don't lose control. Amen. Folks, listen, it's always about control. It's always about the money and it's always about the control. What's going on in Washington right now, it's all about control. And once you have control, it's all about the money. Who's going to get it and who gets to spend it? So we, again, we, we see nothing new under the sun. Men are, have always been men. Fallen men are fallen men and fallen men do what fallen men do. They lie. So he's lied here as well, and it's depending on the presence of the high priest and religious leaders to support him in the lie. And they were, as we say, slinging mud, hoping some of it would stick. It was sheer propaganda. And now it's Paul's turn to answer the accusers. And, and, and can you notice with me, he's standing completely alone. Here is this huge group of very impressive, learned, educated men. And Paul's standing completely alone, except Jesus is with him. But that's it. There's no one with him. So verse 10, then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. I want you to notice how Paul avoids the sickening flattery used by Tertullus. He's going to answer honestly, honestly with the truth and let the ships fall. He's going to let the truth do the walking for him. Verse 11, because you may ascertain that it's no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to, to worship. Paul is saying, hey, I haven't even been in Jerusalem two weeks. How in the world have I had enough time to hatch some deep plot or cause major rioting? He's saying, on the face, it's not, it doesn't make sense. I didn't have time to do this. And then verse 12, he goes on. And they didn't find me in the temple disputing with anybody or inciting the crowd. And they didn't find me in the synagogues or in the city. Now verse 13, I love it. Nor can they prove 
the things of which they now accuse me. Right there, he's challenging the men that are standing there accusing him, saying, if you got the proof, cough it up. But you can't prove it. It hasn't been proven. This is only propaganda. It's a lie. So there it was, the unvarnished truth. Everything you've heard, Felix, is a trumped-up lie. I did not go into the temple. I did not stir up a mob. I did not take a Gentile beyond the line of demarcation that I shared with you folks uh, on the night we covered this. I did not take a Gentile beyond where he should go. I did not do in the temple what they're saying that I did. Yes, I was in the temple. That's the half truth or the half lie. I was in the temple, but I didn't do the things they said. And none of them can prove what they're saying. Now, I've got to stop here, and I want to ask a question. Here's one of my heroes of the faith, Paul. No doubt about it, and you know how I feel about Paul. Uh, an amazing man. He's, he, he sits there under this vicious attack, and he says to the judge, I cheerfully give my answer. I want you to notice, like I said, though, he's alone. I have a question. Where are all of Paul's friends from Jerusalem during this great trial of his? Remember when he went there, he was greeted. He was greeted by everybody in the Jerusalem church. He was received. He was asked by James, the, the uh, senior pastor, what we would call him, of the Jerusalem church, to share his testimony, to share a good report about what God had done how God had reached the Gentiles, how God had used Paul to go out there and preach the gospel. James had received him. Paul had testified. It was James who told him, go to the temple with four men so that they can see that you're not against Jewish law. So the very people who sent him, where the mob was stirred up and where he got into so much trouble, where are they? And i got to ask, where was James? James was held in high regard by the Jews, and he was pastor of the Jerusalem church, who had also welcomed Paul. Why hadn't he come forward to substantiate Paul's claims? Because James knew it wasn't true. Now, I'm not slamming James, totally. But it's, it's sort of like, imagine this, church. If I have a missionary come, and he's very controversial, everywhere he goes... He stirs up riots and mobs and trouble because of his extreme boldness in Christ. And I said to him, why don't you go down to the Fort Worth Square and why don't you, uh, uh, you know, pass out tracks very calmly. Don't stir things up. Say hello to everybody. Be very, very kind and nice. And, and let them see that you're not everything that they've heard you are. Show them another side. And he went. And when he went, a mob was stirred up against him by unbelievers, and he was carried to Tarrant County Jail, and I never went and saw him. That's what we're talking about here. Where's the man, James? I just, you know, I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, James, where were you? Your brother is having to face this court of liars alone. And you could give a testimony that would support his side of things. Where's the four men Paul took to the temple under James's instructions? 
Why weren't they there to testify that Paul was with them in the temple and these accusations aren't true? Let me answer my own question. Are you ready? When you stand for the truth, the unvarnished truth, the whole truth, 100% truth, and you're bold in Jesus, and you don't care what people think, don't expect to be surrounded by a bunch of supporters when you get persecuted. Those who stand for the truth often stand alone. I'm going to say that again. Those who really stand for the truth often stand alone. Paul continues with his defense, though nobody has been there to stand with him. Verse 14. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, heresy, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept that there will be a what, everybody? Say it with me. Resurrection of who? The dead. Both of the just and the unjust. Everybody's coming out of that grave one day. Everybody. There isn't anybody that's not going to come out of the grave. Are you aware of that? Have you ever thought about that? Not just believers. Every human being that ever breathed a breath on earth is coming out of the grave one day. The just and the unjust. The unjust to face judgment and the just to go into heaven. There's going to be a great resurrection. Now, here's the deal. Paul's only confession, the only thing he's owning up to is that he believed in the word of God. The prophets and the law. And he took God's word literally. Believing all things. Everybody say believing all things. Because that's what he said up here. He said, I believe the word of God. All things written in the word. All things written in the law and in the prophets. I believe all things that were written. So we could say he was an inerrantist. Which means he didn't believe there was any error in the Bible. Now that's where I stand. I don't believe there's any error in the original manuscripts. There have been some translations where I think they made some mistakes translating from the original text. And I could name some of the worst ones to you, but I'm not here to do that tonight. Um, but I do believe there's some good ones, and I'm not a King James only. Don't throw rocks at me. I don't believe that King James is the only valid translation. I think the NASB is a good one. Here I go. I'm going to do it anyway. I think the New American Standard is a good one. I think the New Living Translation is a good one. Uh, I could name the Revised Standard Version. They left some things out of the original text that I think are very damaging. They left out of Mark 16, for instance, in the Revised Standard Version. They left out Jesus saying they will, uh, they will cast out devils. They will lay hands on the sick. They will speak with new tongues. They left that out of the Revised Standard. They took that out. I think that was a mistake. But that's was in the original text, and in the original text, there were no mistakes. I am an inerrantist. It's without error. Now, you can throw rocks at me or call me stupid or anti-intellectual or uneducated. I'm none of those. I'm educated more than most. I've read more than most because I'm a reader by nature. And I'm going to tell you, I have a mind, and I've thought this through. And I don't think you've got to commit intellectual suicide to say that you believe the Bible is the word of God. Seriously. 
I mean, I've walked on it, I've staked my life on it, and it's never failed me yet. Okay, enough of that. I didn't mean to go there. But I want you to see this great man, this apostle, he said, I believe all things that the prophets wrote. So Paul was crystal clear. He believed Jesus to be the anticipated Messiah, predicted by the prophets, and that he was the Lord of the coming resurrection of the dead. And we need to understand tonight that in saying these things, he was not deviating from Jewish orthodoxy at all. Because the Jews believed there was going to be a resurrection of the dead. The only ones who didn't were the Sadducees who were sad, you see. I'm sorry, that's so bad. I couldn't. But see, they're sad because they didn't believe in an eternal life. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the supernatural. So I really do believe they were sad, you see. <laughs> I know that's cheap. I'll get, I'll get emails from the radio on that one. Pastor Jeff, that's been around forever. I know, but it's true. All right, now. So he wasn't, the, the, the men standing there judging him, except for the Sadducees, would have said, hey, we're with you on the resurrection. We got it. Verse 16. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. Now let's pause there a moment. That's a powerful statement. We need to heed Paul's resolve. He's saying in light of the coming resurrection and the coming judgment, I have made it one of my great goals to never soil my conscience. To have a conscience without offense, vertically and horizontally. I'm going to have a clear conscience towards God. And if, if I, of course, he sins sometimes, we all do. Um, and when he sinned, he made, he, he repented quickly. He kept short accounts with God. And that's what I always advise and counsel our congregation to do. We're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to think something, say something, do something, cop an attitude, something that grieves the spirit. And when we do, what you do is quickly get it under the blood. Never give a sin longer than a 24 hour shelf life or it will spoil. Get it under the blood quickly and keep your conscience clear. Because when your conscience is not clear, you lose your boldness in prayer. You lose your boldness in witnessing. And there is nobody more miserable than an unrepentant Christian. Okay? So Paul said, not only God word, but man word. I do everything I can to keep a clear conscience towards men towards my brothers and sisters, and anybody and everybody who I can make it right with, I make it right. Have you ever just decided one day to call an enemy and say, you know, let's have lunch. Let's meet for coffee. Get them in Starbucks where many good things happen. <laughs> say, would you, you know, or, or, or is there anything I can pray with you about? Now, you can't always do that because Paul wrote in another place, he said, uh, uh, keep, it, keep it right with people as much as lies within you. In other words, there's some people, they're not going to let you make it right. And then you have to just say, well, God, I tried, I give them to you, and I walk away. But Paul said, as, as much and as often as I can make it right horizontally with people, I do. I want a clear conscience. He said, I'm going to live a life of purity, 
And I'm going to maintain a clear conscience towards God and men. It's so important to your warfare to keep a clear conscience. Now he continues his defense. Verse 17, now after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. Now he's just straight up telling them why he came to Jerusalem in the first place. To do good to his fellow Jews by bringing them money and relief, alms and offerings to my nation. And then he says, when I, when I went into the temple and, and I, I came to Jerusalem to do this good thing, I'm in the temple and in the midst of which some Jews from Asia, verse 18, found me purified in the temple. I wasn't doing anything wrong. They just found me purified in the temple. I wasn't with a mob. I wasn't causing tumult. Verse 19, they, my accusers, who say I was doing otherwise, should have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. He's saying, where are my accusers? He informs Felix that he was taken into protective custody by the Romans to save him from being torn apart by a mob incited by Asiatic Jews, not him. Amen. And he wants to know why the real accusers aren't in the trial. Where are they? Here's the answer. They knew their charges would fall apart under scrutiny. So they didn't come. Isn't it funny when somebody accuses you of something... You say, well, where's my accuser? Well, bring them to me and let them accuse me to my face. And isn't it funny how sometimes they won't show? And they'll give some excuse. Well, they wouldn't hear, he wouldn't hear me anyway. Or nobody would believe me. Or some such nonsense as that. If you've ever been falsely accused, and I have. I have been falsely accused. And it was a very uh, dark experience. And I called for the accusers. And none came. None came. Because if it's real, why don't the two of us go get on a lie detector machine? I'll go. Will you go? Where are my accusers? Now, look at verse 20. Continuing on, he says, or else let those who are here themselves... Say, if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. You, you that are here, tell me what you say you saw with me standing here. Verse 21. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them, concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. Now he has gone straight to the chase. And he's saying the real reason I'm here is because of my preaching on the resurrection from the dead in Jesus Christ, who you killed. It wasn't just that he was preaching the resurrection. It was who he was preaching was the Lord of the resurrection and who would be in charge of the resurrection when it happened. The man Christ Jesus, who you killed. Everything else I'm being charged with is a smokescreen. That's the real reason I'm here. You don't like me preaching Jesus. So Paul is just stripping the disguise off of them and all of the piousness and all of the high-handedness. And he's saying, you've got me here because I'm preaching Jesus as Lord of the resurrection. That's what you don't like. You know, folks, if you had heard the disciples in the book of Acts in the first century when they went out preaching, they always preached the resurrection. 
Please understand tonight, your faith, Christianity, the crux and core of it is the resurrection. That's the crux and the core of it. He rose from the dead, and because he rose from the dead, you're going to rise from the dead. That's the crux and core of Christianity. If you take the resurrection away, there is no Christianity. So when Paul and them went out, this is what got them into trouble. They preached the coming resurrection under the power and lordship of Jesus Christ, who was the resurrection and the life. And that's what the Jews didn't like. Now next, like a good politician, Felix passes the buck. Verse 22. When Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way... He adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I'm going to make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. Now what's really happened here is Felix should have dismissed Paul's case because they brought no proof at all. But he doesn't want to deal with the fury of the Jewish Sanhedrin. So he deferred the case to another day and Paul received leniency when he should have gotten liberty. Verse 24. And after some days when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. Isn't that in a Disney cartoon somewhere? <laughs> <clears throat> that just sounds wicked, doesn't it? <clears throat> Drusilla. Here's my daughter, Drusilla. Wouldn't you like to take her out? Hey, Drew. Scylla. Now, after some days when Felix, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, let me tell you about Drusilla. It's worth noting here that Felix's wife, Drusilla, was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I, the same Herod who had murdered James and would have murdered Peter. So her daddy had apostles' blood all over his hands. No wonder he named his daughter Drusilla. She sounds like a vampire. <laughs> Drusilla, his daughter, look at her history here. Drusilla, his daughter, had been married to a prince in Syria as a 16-year-old when she ran away from her husband to marry Felix, becoming his third wife. So she's an adulteress, and he's an adulterer. And this is the guilty pair before whom Paul now preaches the gospel. Paul knows her daddy killed James. Now, that would take the anointing off you for a second there, wouldn't it? But not Paul. Look at verse 25. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. King James says he trembled and answered, Go away for now. <laughs> Get out of here. I can hear him. I'm convicted to the core. Get out of here. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Now, let's look at what uh, Paul preached. He preached on righteousness. No doubt about it, he was telling them there's no righteousness really apart from faith in Christ. And then he talked about self-control, something which the couple before him had none of. And he preached about judgment to come. Judgment was coming with no escape but Calvary. No doubt that's what Paul was saying. No wonder Felix felt the heat, trembled, and killed the interview. 
He took the out so many others take by saying, at a convenient time, I will call you. But now catch next what Felix was really after, folks. Verse 26. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. Now, notice with me. He brought Paul before him because he was hoping Paul offered him a bribe. I'll give you money if you'll set me free. That's what he was after. He wasn't calling Paul back to hear more about righteousness, self-control, and judgment. He was calling Paul back, hoping for money. Felix talked with Paul several times again, but his conscience was seared. He was actually hoping for a bribe from Paul or his friends in order to gain his release. So he was after filthy lucre. He wasn't after salvation. How sad. Felix died. And Felix went to hell. Verse 27. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. During these two years, Paul enjoys relative peace and quiet, but all of that's about to be broken by new storms on the horizon, beginning in the next chapter. Let's start chapter 25, verse 1. Now, when Festus had come to the province, after three days, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Now, who's Festus? Festus is the new governor of the region and will only serve two years. He's going to make it two years, and he's done. He knew, coming in, that the reputation of the Jews in his province was that of being violent, fanatical, and virtually ungovernable. So he wanted to score some points with them, starting with Ananias, the high priest. So verse 2, then the high priest and the chief men, the high priest being Ananias, and the chief men being the religious leaders of the Jews, informed him against Paul. And they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon Paul to Jerusalem so that they could lay an ambush along the road and kill him. These are religious leaders, folks. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going to go to Caesarea shortly. Therefore, Festus said to them, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there's any fault in him. I want to hear your accusations about him in his presence. Now, at this juncture, there remained only about 10 years before the Lord's warnings of the fall of Jerusalem would take place. You got to always keep that in mind, church. Because all that we're reading about in the book of Acts happened before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. When Jesus said not one stone is going to be left upon another, it's going to be decimated. And you better be ready. You better not be carrying child. You better be ready to run. You better be ready to take the open door I give you, the exit door I give you, while the getting is out is good, and run to the hills because it's going to be completely decimated because you didn't know the hour of your visitation. You did not accept me, Messiah. So all of this drama is happening leading up to the decimation of Jerusalem. And we see that the hearts of the religious leaders are in exactly the same condition that had brought the Lord's eight woes. He spoke over them in Matthew 23. You ought to go read it. 
Jesus was stout. Jesus was not politically correct. Woe unto you for this. Woe unto you for that. And he spoke eight woes over them. And all those eight woes happened. Read it in Matthew 23. These Jewish leaders are the same ones that crucified him. That is, they've got the same heart. They are bloodthirsty. They are utterly resistant to the truth of Christ. And they are conniving. They are godless. They are sinister. They are absolutely the children of the devil. As Jesus said to them himself, you are of your father, the devil. That's what he said to them. And here they are trying to kill Paul in cold blood. Festus sees through their intent to kill Paul, should he send him to Jerusalem, and refuses their request. Verse 6, and when he had remained among them more than 10 days, that is Festus, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he, Festus, commanded Paul to be brought. And when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which, again, they could not prove. Well, once again, Paul answered for himself, saying, Neither against the laws of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. Everything they're telling you, Festus, is a lie. Up to this point, let's just remember Paul's human. This has to be frustrating for him. To have been brought before Felix so many times, no doubt believing, hey, I'm kind of striking up a relationship with this guy. We're getting to know each other. Felix made a political move and didn't release him. Felix was guilty of criminal neglect of his duty and office and not releasing Paul. Now, thanks to Felix's unfitness for office, Paul had to endure yet another trial and had to listen to these accusations all over again. There's no question that the great apostle's soul was sorely tested and tried by these failings of men. In court, he had yet again to listen to the lies, the half-truths, and the diatribes of the Jews who were so full of venom and spite. And as before, they couldn't prove any of their accusation against him. Paul again denies their claims and defends himself. Now look at verse 9. Festus wanting to do the Jews a favor. Here is the second guy making a political move. Wanting to do the Jews a favor, just like Felix had done, answered Paul and said, Hey, Paul, you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? And like a bad dream, Paul sees a repeat of politics and convenience prevailing over justice. Festus was looking to gain points with the Jews. He was not searching for the truth. Do we see these things today, I ask you? looking for political maneuvering, maneuvering politically to get money and favor and gain, accepting bribes and not really after the truth. Nothing new under the sun. Returning to Jerusalem, though, here's what it meant for Paul if he had said yes to this question from Festus. It meant returning to square one. He'd been in captivity now two years waiting for justice. Two years waiting for justice when he had been utterly falsely accused. And seeing Festus play politics moved him to play his ace card. He said, I appeal to Caesar. Nobody expected him to say this. Look at verse 10. Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I've done no wrong. 
as you very well know, you ought to be setting me free. You know I didn't do anything, Festus. Verse 11, for I am an offender, or if I am an offender, or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, nobody can deliver me to them. So no, I'm not going back to Jerusalem and falling into their hands. I appeal to Caesar. Now those four last words exploded like a bomb. Paul was a Roman citizen, and only a Roman citizen could appeal to Caesar. To revoke his right as a Roman citizen would have spelled disaster for Festus. So when he said, I appeal to Caesar, he left Festus no choice. Verse 12. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. Do you sense these a little bit angry right there? Paul was smart. He said, you're going you're gonna to take me through these kangaroo courts. I'm going to end it right here. I'm going to Caesar. And next, another king and queen enter the stage as we finish this uh, 25th chapter. Verse 13. After some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. Now, let me tell you who Agrippa was. He was subservient to Festus. He was not over Festus. But Festus needed his help in extricating himself from Caesar's displeasure at having been handed Paul's case, which for a Caesar would have been small stuff. Paul should never have had to go this far. He went this far because Felix and Festus were playing politics and not dealing truthfully. So now Paul has turned the tables and said, I'm going to Caesar. So Festus essentially is freaking out. And so he's saying... I need somebody in political power standing with me so that when Caesar gets Paul's case, I'm not standing alone receiving the wrath of Caesar alone. I want Agrippa saying, yeah, yeah, you know, this had to happen. I want Agrippa standing with me. So he tells Agrippa the whole story, and let me just read through it quickly, verse 14. He's going to rehearse to Agrippa Paul's case. Verse 14, when they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charges against him. Therefore, verse 17, when they had come together without any delay the next day, I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man, Paul, to be brought in. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I thought they would. But they had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus. Isn't that interesting? A certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. <gasps> and because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus Caesar, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Now, Agrippa's listening to all this, and he's getting intrigued. 
So Agrippa said to Festus, wow, now that's me. Agrippa said to Festus, wow, I would love to hear this man myself. And Festus said, you got it. Tomorrow you will hear him. Now I want to pause and just remind you of something as we draw to the close. Let's remember the Lord Jesus' words regarding Paul's calling. Remember Acts 9.15? Jesus told Ananias, who was going to go pray for him. He said, Ananias, I know what he's done, but here's who he's going to be. He's a chosen vessel of mine. To bear my name before who, everybody? Gentiles. And who? Kings. And the children of Israel. Who's that? The Jews. And remember also the words of Jesus to his own disciples prior to his crucifixion. Matthew 10, 18. Jesus said, you're going to be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. So while it appears here, if you're in their shoes, Paul's shoes, the church's shoes in this day of intense persecution, it appears as if things are happening according to the will and politics of men. If Paul hadn't had a vertical view of sovereignty and, and believed that God was ultimately in control, he would have believed that he was just a pawn in the political playings of men. Felix doesn't do right. Festus doesn't do right. They're both seeking the favor of the Jews. They're playing politics. But Paul knew that there was a higher authority ordering his steps. And church, listen to me. Sometimes where you work, and I know there's politics in every job. Where you work, there's politics. Can I tell you, even though it looks like the politics of men prevail sometimes, there is a higher authority ordering your steps. There is a higher authority ordering your steps. And, and Jesus sees everything done to you or for you. He sees it all. And though it may have looked to the natural eye, like Paul was a loser, two years sitting in prison while these guys play politics for doing nothing wrong. Paul knew that God had said to him, you're going to Rome and you're going to face Caesar. So Paul said, though it looks like politics are in charge, they're not. The sovereignty of God's in charge. Jesus predicted these very things would happen to his own. So verse 23, the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. Once again, he's alone. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death, who does that does that ring a memory in your mind? Who said that about someone else? Didn't Pilate say that about Jesus? And that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after you, after the examination, put another way, after you check him out, I may have something to write to Caesar, for it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. In other words, I want Agrippa's word as well as mine. I don't want to do this alone because Caesar's not going to like getting this guy's case. So Paul's about to speak. 
And we're going to look at it next time. And it is filled with red, hot, white, hot, convicting power. And this man is going to stand up in a way, all alone, that needs to inspire us all. Next time, Paul's powerful defense. Can we stand together? How many of you are blessed tonight?